Can I have you turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Romans chapter 1? Now in our study in Romans, we are currently in chapter 1. where We've been looking at the first main section of the book, which runs from chapter 1 verse 18 through chapter 3 verse 20. And we have spent a little extra time on this section by taking some of Paul's statements and exploring them in greater detail. And now, as we return to the text, let's review briefly uh, so as to refresh our memories and help the new folks catch up a little bit. This first main section falls under the heading of condemnation. Condemnation. Because in it, Paul wants to prove that the whole world apart from Jesus Christ is condemned by God. Now, as we have said, condemnation is a judicial term denoting that fallen man is guilty before a holy righteous God of violating his laws and, and is therefore condemned or sentenced to spend eternity in hell for crimes against him. And as we have said here, Paul is acting like a prosecuting attorney who starts by proving that the pagan, which he calls the ungodly, is condemned guilty before a holy God. He starts with the most obvious group, the group that everyone else would say, well, the pagan, pagan idolatry, of course, they need to go to hell, they're condemned. But then he slowly works us up, way up the, the line there. Next, he tackles the moralist. And he says basically that those who think they're right with God because they live a quote-unquote moral life, well, they're hypocrites and guilty also. And then finally, he turns his focus on the religionist. You could pick a religion. He focuses in on Judaism, which was a religion from God. But even a, religious, a religion from God, Judaism, he wants the Jewish people to realize that keeping the law of God, again, religion, will not save them either. The verdict, all apart from Christ, are guilty and condemned. Now, why is it so important that Paul begins the main body of this epistle by proving the whole world apart from Jesus is condemned? Well, again, as we have said before, it's important because the theme of the book of Romans is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We know that from chapter 1, verse 16. And yet Paul knows that before a person will see their need for a Savior, they first have to be made to see themselves as sinners. And that's why he starts this section with the wrath of God, verse 18. Let's read it. Verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man, and birds, and four-footed animals, and creeping things. Therefore, God also gave them up. Let me stop there. 
The therefore in verse 24 was put there by Paul because it's tied to what he has said in verses 18 to 23. But also it was put there because the statement that follows it, therefore at the beginning of verse 24, um, is there because of the statement that comes after it. God also gave them up. Look, the major point of verses 24 to 32 is that when sinners willfully abandon God, God abandons them. In other words, if they don't want God and his truth, he will let them go to pursue other gods and other belief systems. As we have already pointed out, these are nothing more than the lies of the devil. But if they don't want God and the light of his truth, he will let them go to pursue whatever their hearts desire resulting in the statement and their foolish hearts were darkened when people push out the light of god's truth it leaves a vacuum that the darkness of satan's lies rush into fill look through the creation as we have looked at this numerous times but through the creation god gave them the pagan world the truth about his existence but instead of using that information, actually a revelation, instead of using that revelation to worship the Creator, because He clearly has shown them He exists through the creation. But man looks at the creation, and instead of worshiping the Creator, he turns around and does the dumbest, the most foolish thing people can do. He or she worships the creation rather than the creator this is the ultimate foolishness and that's why paul said professing to be wise they became fools again the greek word is where we get our word moron from it's amazing how smart people can act like such morons and i'm not using that as a pejorative i'm saying this is what god has said they profess to be wise they have their degrees a lot of them have their phds but when you reject the creator the creation would should surely point a person to but you reject the creator turn around and worship the creation that is the ultimate foolishness the ultimate foolishness so therefore they reject god they worship the creation rather than God. Verse 24, therefore, God also gave them up to uncleanness and the lust of their hearts to dishonor their bodies among themselves, who exchanged the truth of God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who was blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to vile passions. For even their women exchanged the natural use for what is against nature. Likewise, also the men, leaving the natural use of the woman, burned in their lust for one another. Men with men, committing what is shameful, and receiving in themselves the penalty of their error, which was due. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind, to do those things which are not fitting. Let me stop there. In verse 18, Paul said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven 
against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And the way that God's wrath is being revealed today is spoken of in verses 24, 26, and 28. Three times God said, God, Paul said, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them over, but it's the same phrase in the Greek. Three times. In these three verses, we read God gave them up. And the Greek verb Paul uses is paradidomi, which is an intense verb in the Greek. In the New Testament, it's used in 1 Corinthians 3, verse, excuse me, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 3. It's used of giving one's body to be burned as a martyr. And further, it's used three times of Jesus giving himself up to death. But the word is also used in the New Testament in the judicial sense of a person being committed to prison or to judgment. And that's how Paul is using it here in Romans chapter 1. In other words, God gave them up to punishment, God gave them up to imprisonment, and God gave them up to painful circumstances, the painful consequences of their sinful deeds. In fact, guys, the punishment is that God gave them up. God abandoned them. Again, God gave them up or God gave them over to their, to their own sinful desires and actions which brought consequences into their life that God did not want them to, wanted to, he wanted to spare them from these consequences. People think God just doesn't want people to have fun. He's mean. He's a killjoy. Satan planted that in Eve's ear when he basically said to her, you know, why, God is keeping from you, Eve, something good. He, he doesn't want you to discover the divinity he's discovered. He's not your friend, Eve. He's somebody that's working against you. Today, a lot of people think that God just is working to make my life miserable. He doesn't want me to be happy. Nothing could be farther from the truth. But what often will bring some people happiness, God knows, will down the road bring tragedy and heartache. It's like a little kid. Some of you have little children, maybe two or three years old. Grandkids, maybe. What if your two-year-old came running into the living room holding a very sharp pair of scissors? Shiny, never saw them before. He or she's fascinated. You shriek in horror as the child's running across the living room with this sharp pair of scissors. You rush over and yank it from their hand. They don't know what you're doing. In their mind, you're taking something away from them that is making them happy. But you know, it's out of love that you do that because some things, although initially make people think they're happy, will end in great heartache. So sometimes God has no choice but to hand people over to the very things they're bound and determined to do, even though God knows, as he's tried to keep them from these things, even as he knows that unless they experience it for themselves, he wanted to spare them from painful consequences, but some people have to learn the hard way. And so sometimes God will give them over to certain desires and practices because that's the only way 
he can ultimately spare them from certain things down the road. This is something we read about all throughout Scripture. You don't have to turn to it, but Psalm 81, verses 11 to 12. God said, But my people would not heed my voice, and Israel would have none of me. So I gave them over to their own stubborn heart to walk in their own counsels. But hey, isn't that a good thing? I mean, honestly, isn't independence from God the very thing that man has wanted from the very beginning, from the Garden of Eden? I mean, aren't God's commandments restrictive, repressive, and the greatest hindrance to men's freedom and happiness? Because that's what a lot of people think. Here's the hard lesson that fallen men and women who run from God into sin in the lust of their hearts eventually learn. These are the hard lessons. Sin brings pleasure, or what we would call sin. They don't call it sin. No such thing as sin to some people today. But the thing that brings pleasure, the things that God has said not to do, they rush headlong into doing those things. And you know what? It brings pleasure for a season, right? But will inevitably lead to the opposite of everything they're looking for. In other words, instead of joy, there is sorrow. Instead of peace, there is restlessness and unfulfillment. Instead of freedom, there is bondage and misery. Listen to me very carefully, because I want you to understand this. That when the text says that God gave them up, listen, it doesn't mean that God gave up on them. This is not the final act of, on God's part that forever seals a person's eternal judgment in hell. Yeah, sure. If they don't want God ruling over their lives... If they refuse to live by God's righteous standards, he will at one point let them go to do their own thing, whatever they are so bent on doing. I mean, he'll, he will let them indulge their flesh so that the consequences of their actions will listen, will hopefully bring them to their senses where they repent, come to God, and get their lives right with him which seems to be the whole point in Jesus' parable of the prodigal son, right? You have to turn there because you know the story. It comes out of Luke 15, verses 11 to 32, where a certain man had two sons. The younger of the two kind of felt like he was being um, hindered from enjoying life, you know, working on his dad's farm, uh, all this stuff, having to li live a life that um, honored his father. I get the impression he was a God-fearing father, so a life that honored God. And he felt restricted. He felt like, you know, he wasn't able to spread his wings and really fly. So one day he comes to his dad, and, and we don't understand the gravity of what he has said to him. We don't live in that patriarchal culture. He comes to his dad one day, and basically, I'll paraphrase, said to him, Dad, I kind of wish you were dead so I could have my inheritance because really I feel like I'm being hindered here serving you. I want to get out there and experience the world. His father could have 
disowned him. Jewish fathers could have disowned him on the spot, or would have, many. But this was a good man, and he was wise enough to understand, the father, that I could force my son to stay here. And he'd be here physically, but his heart would be gone. And I'd rather have him here physically and in his heart. So the father gave his son his inheritance. He went to a faraway country, and he wasted it on what we call prodigal living. Prodigal means wasteful. I mean, while he had money, he had friends, right? And all, everyone loved him because he was always, you know, the one to put his hand in his pocket and buy the first round or whatever they did. But soon the money ran out. I don't know how soon. A month, two months, six months, who cares? Eventually the money ran out. And a severe famine came to that land. And his job was to slop. He went to this far country and he joined himself to a, um, a master who gave him the job of slopping the pigs. Now, if you're a Jew, that's about as low as it gets. Pigs are unclean animals. And here you are, you know, ankle deep, knee deep in pig slop, feeding the pigs. And it says that he, he longed to fill his stomach with the, with the carob pods. The pigs were eating. And don't miss this. It says that he came to his senses. And he said to himself, my father's servants have plenty to eat. What am I doing here? Working for a stranger, feeding pigs, and I don't even have a decent meal. I know what I'll do. I'll go back to my father's house and tell him, Father, I am not worthy to be called your son, but if you just let me, I would like to be a hired servant. And so that's what he did. Now, it's always touched me as I read that story how the father saw him coming, what? Afar off. Which says to me he was looking for this boy. And he broke all protocol in that culture when he saw him coming down the road. Because what did he do? He ran to him. He ran to his son. A Jewish father was too proud to ever show that kind of affection to a wayward, rebellious child. But he ran to this boy, and he did what? He threw his arms around him. Now we read that and go, well, that was just a nice display of affection. Again, uh, not usual in that culture, but okay, this father really loved his son. I came across something a few years ago that may shed a little more light on this. You realize in that culture, um, town, villages all worked together. Everybody in that town knew this kid disrespected his father. And the price for disrespecting your parents in that culture was what? Stoning. So by the father grabbing his son, wrapping his arms around him, he was saying to the neighbors, if you're going to kill him, you've got to get through me first. And then the son broke into his little speech. Father, I'm not worthy to be called your son. But 
if you'll just let me be one of your hired servants, that will be enough. Father stopped him, probably mid-sentence, and said, bring to him a robe. Put sandals on his feet because slaves didn't wear sandals. Put a ring in his finger, signet ring, power of attorney. And let's throw a feast because my son who was lost is now found. And you know the rest of the story. But the whole point of that story was to teach us that even in our rebellion, even before we know the Lord, he's pursuing us. Sure, he's got to let us go. If we don't want to come to him voluntarily, we want to do our own thing and so on and so forth. At one point, he's got to let us go because we're never really going to be with him until we are with him in our hearts. So when it says three times in Romans 1 about the pagans, God tried to bring them. God tried to reveal himself to them. But they didn't want him. So he gave them up. He gave them up. He gave them up. It doesn't mean he gave up on them. Let me give you some scriptures, okay? Well, maybe we can turn to these. Jeremiah chapter 2. This one I think you should probably highlight. But Jeremiah 2, verse 19. Listen to what God said to Israel. Your own wickedness will correct you, and your backslidings will rebuke you. Know, therefore, and see that it is an evil and bitter thing that you have forsaken the Lord your God. And the fear of me is not in you, says the Lord God of hosts. God is saying we can do this one of two ways, Israel. We can do it the easy way, or we can do it the hard way. A wise man or woman learns from the mistakes of others who had to learn it the hard way so that they don't have to do that go that route themselves. God is saying, look, I love you guys. I've tried to reach out to you. You are hard-headed, stiff-necked. So you know what? I'm going to turn you over to the consequences of your own sins. Didn't want you to have to go through that stuff. But your own backslidings are going to reprove you. They're, they're going to, the way of the transgressor is what? Hard. Some people get beat up enough by their sin as a way of tenderizing their hearts. You don't have to turn to this one, Isaiah 19, verse 22. And the Lord will strike Egypt. Now, Egypt is a type of the world. And the Lord will strike Egypt. <laughs> he will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord. And he will be entreated by them and heal them. So God says, I want to save Egypt, but i got to bring judgment upon them because their hearts are so hard right now. That's why the psalmist said, It was good for me to have been afflicted by you, Lord. I've learned to keep your ways. Turn to 1 Corinthians 6, and let's read verses 9 to 11. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know? that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. 
but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. If you compare this list of sins right here in 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 to, uh, and 10, it matches almost exactly the same list in Romans 1. And yet these people were redeemed. They had once lived this life, and yet God worked, they repented, and now they were children of God. So when we read the, the people in Romans 1 and the sins they're involved in, they are not beyond the grace of God. They're not too far gone to experience the touch of God. I'll give you one more, 2 Peter 3, nine. You all know this one, of course, verse uh, 2 Peter 3, nine. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness. Uh, what, what promise? The promise to judge sin. So why isn't he doing it? Because he's long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish in hell, but that all should come to repentance. The goodness of God leads us to to repentance so God is patient God is patiently waiting for people to have a change of heart God will turn them over to their sinful desires even though he didn't want them to have to suffer the consequences of those sins but if that's what it's going to take to save somebody that's what God will do I've heard people say over the years um if God is such a loving God, why do people have to suffer the way they do? And they think that they got an airtight case against God. If he was a loving God, he wouldn't let people suffer. And some people really do suffer, don't they? Some people's lives, it's amazing what they go through. But if God was really a good and loving and kind God, he wouldn't put them through that hell in this life. Okay? I get it. How about this? Would you rather God gave you a cushy, wonderful life full of blessings and no painful circumstances your whole life, and then you died and went to hell forever? The real hell. Or would you rather he put you through a little hell on earth to bring you to him so that you wouldn't have to spend eternity in the real hell, suffering? Look, it was C.S. Lewis that said, God whispers in our pleasures, but shouts in our pain. It depends how hard a person's heart is. Some people are very tender. And God blesses them. I'm talking about unbelievers now. And they're just, you know, they've grown up in the church, maybe went to Awanas and Christian youth camp, and they know who God is, but they're not redeemed yet. They're not born again. And God starts putting some blessings on their life, and all of a sudden, they're overwhelmed at how good he is. And they just fall on their face. Thank you, God. You're so good to me. And they give their heart to Christ. Other people are very hard-hearted. And so God has to ramp up. I mean, it's not like they're going to respond to the blessings and the love. They need to have God ramp up the pain. And it's pain brought upon themselves by their own sin. But if he can't get their attention by whispering in their pleasures, he'll shout in their pain because he loves them. 
He does not want to see anyone go to hell. And that's why whatever he has to do to make it tough on a person right now, he'll do it. To the world, it looks like God's mean. God's cruel. Oh, no. Nobody loves us more than God does. Even before we were saved, Christ proved his love for us by dying for sinners. And yet, tragically, many people will never learn from their sins and turn to God, but instead will die in their sins, which is absolutely not what God wants. Turn to Ezekiel 18. I just want to read you verses 30 to 32. This is one of those places in the Bible where God's heart really comes through, I think. Where it sounds like he's just pleading with people. Verse 30, Ezekiel 18, verse 30. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, everyone according to his ways, says the Lord God. Repent and turn from all your transgressions, so that iniquity will not be your ruin. Cast away from you all the transgressions which you have committed and get yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. In other words, get saved. For why should you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies. Another place he says, I have no pleasure in the, de in the death of the wicked, says the Lord God. Therefore, turn and live, pleading with people. Now, if God forced people to be saved, as some believe, there's no point in pleading with people. You only plead with people when they have a free will. Because you're pleading with them to exercise that free will in accordance to the will of God. Right? But guys, this is the sad reality of the story of redemption. And by the way, the story of redemption is the story of the Bible. It's the theme of the entire Bible. Redemption. Jesus died so that the whole world could be saved. Uh, that's what the Bible teaches. 1 John 2, verse 2, He didn't die just for our sins. As believers, He died for the sins of the whole world. The whole world could go to heaven. But many people will not. That's the tragedy. Well, why won't they? Well, because they've hardened their hearts to God. They want to do it their way. They think like Cain, who didn't follow God's instructions on the proper way to approach him, as Abel did. But Cain decided, no, I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to approach God on my terms. And when he was rejected, he got upset. And God says, Cain, what are you upset about? If you do it my way, if you come to me the way I have prescribed, I'll accept you. But if you're going to be rebellious, don't expect to enter my kingdom on your terms. A lot of folks don't realize that. They live in rebellion against God. If they do believe in God, they believe that, you know, they're good enough to make it. They don't need Jesus and you evangelicals, you're cop out, you know, you're just, you know, uh, Jesus is a crutch for you. I don't need a crutch. I'm a good person, they'd say. But listen. If they die in that state of rebellion and wind up going to hell, which they will, it isn't God's fault. It's not God's fault if he is reaching his hand out to a person their entire life saying, come to me. 
I don't want you to die in your sins. I get no pleasure out of the death of the wicked about sending somebody to hell. I don't get any pleasure out of that. Please turn from your sin. Why will you die? But many do. They don't turn. They do die. I like what Donald Gray Barnhouse, how he put it. He said, and I quote, Man turned away from God and plunged toward himself. Grace pursued him. Grace called to him. Grace pleaded with him. Grace died for him. But the man continued to lunge away from the Creator, and finally, finally the Creator relinquished his grasp, his grasp uh, and the man fell into the bottomless pit of his own horrible being, there to remain ingrown and inbred forever. It's man's fault. God doesn't send anyone to hell. People choose to go there, whether they realize it or not. Look, guys, when Paul says that God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their hearts, verse 24, the Greek word for lust is epithumia, which speaks of a driving, passionate, destructive desire for forbidden pleasure. That's the definition. Let me say it again. God gave them up to uncleanness in the lusts of their heart. Lust means a driving, passionate, destructive desire for forbidden pleasure. One author put it this way, said, and I quote, It's the desire that drives people to do shameless acts. It's the, way of life of, it's the way of life of a person who is so immersed in the world and, and in the gratification of self, the flesh, that all awareness of God is lost, end quote. Doesn't mean they're not religious, by the way, though. It's just that the knowledge of the true God has now fled from them. Guys, we are seeing this scenario being played out every day in our society with the current trans mania movement where women dressing like men calling where women are dressing like men calling themselves men where men are dressing like women and calling themselves women and you know what we should be living in a culture that says poor people what are you doing I'll pray for you uh, I'll help you to get some help because you're confused. You're messed up. This isn't normal. No, not today. What happens today? They're invited to the White House to be celebrated. We see shameful acts on display. Actually, these go be beyond shameful. These are perverted and wicked. Shameful acts on display with things like drag queen story hours for kids. And perverted, sick, and blasphemous acts done to a fake Jesus on a cross during gay pride events. You Maybe you've seen that recently. Incredible. The blasphemy. I mean, the level of perversity we are witnessing in our country is absolutely astonishing. I mean, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, it, there's always been perversion in our, our country. But we've never seen perversion elevated to a place of normalcy and normalcy devalued to a place of almost perversion. It's for, what did the Bible say in Isaiah? Right before God's judgment, one of the things that would, uh, would characterize a culture or a nation, they would begin to call evil good and good evil. When that happens, when there's a moral inversion, God's saying... Judgment is getting very near. 
I mean, again, the level of perversity we are witnessing in our country is absolutely astonishing. All because people have rejected the knowledge of the true God in their desire to live contrary to his laws, to live lives that gratify their flesh, but deny the holiness of God. Look, when Paul talked about the lusts of the heart in verse 24, it's reminiscent of Jesus' words in Mark 7. Why don't you turn there? Again, Jesus speaking, Mark 7, starting with verse 20, where Jesus said, What comes out of a man, <laughs> that defiles a man. For from within, out of the heart of men, proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within. They come from the heart. And those are the things that defile a person. Not eating with unwashed hands, which it didn't mean their hands were dirty. They just hadn't washed them in the ceremonial way that the Pharisees all, you know, preached all the time look the lust of the heart works its way out in the statement to dishonor their bodies among themselves if you study this passage you know that here paul had sexual sin in mind sexual sin turn to first corinthians 6 first corinthians 6 you were just there a minute ago but I want to read this time, verse 13 and verse 18, where Paul said in verse 13, Now the body is not, physical body, is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. Verse 18, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. You can read the whole context to see what, Paul was talking about. It's pretty obvious, though. Turn to 1 Thessalonians 4, and let's read verses 3 to 5. 1 Thessalonians 4, where Paul is also talking on the same subject. He said in verse 3, For this is the will, this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, his own body, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust, like the Gentiles, uh, like the Gentiles who do not know God. It's no different today than it was in Paul's day. Our society is absolutely obsessed with sex and with the human body. I mean, it's everywhere in advertisement, movies, TV shows, music, videos, magazines, and especially on the internet. Look, internet pornography has destroyed many men, their marriages, and even their whole families. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 28? He said, But I say to you, that whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. This is the thing that blew the Pharisees away, Jesus' teaching. Because they had all their focus on the outward actions, and he said, No. It's also the inward attitudes. God's looking at the heart. In fact, that's where all sin begins anyways. And you Pharisees think because you have not committed physical adultery with a woman, you've kept the law. 
but in your hearts you've lusted after women many times, and therefore in the eyes of God you're adulterers. Now guys, I'm not really sure. Well, I know this. The world has never taken anything like this to heart. But you know what? Sad to say, I'm not sure how many Christians take this verse seriously anymore either. The problem is, we're living in such a depraved, sexually rampant, crazed society. <laughs> when everything around you is black, if you're gray, you look good. Of course, the society at large is not the standard we are to compare ourselves to. The standard is Jesus Christ, who's absolutely pure and righteous. And when we stand next to him, we don't look so good. I think the problem with a lot of Christians today is, again, that we're living in such a sex-crazed society where sex is being used to sell everything from toothpaste to toasters. It's gotten so bad that a lot of Christians are not even aware of how much they are violating what Jesus said. The things he came against, right? I mean, you can't go anywhere today without being bombarded with sexual images of some kind or another, even if you go to the mall, right? Have you noticed, this is going back a few years, this actually started. You go to the mall, and all the mannequins are anatomically correct, and half of them aren't even dressed. You, you just right there for kids to see. When I go to the mall and I have to pass by a store like Victoria's Secret, I'm looking the other way, if the store's on this side, I'm not even, I don't even want to look at what's going on in the windows. It's, it's, it's defiling, right? But advertisers are constantly bombarding us with sexual stimuli that is designed to arouse a strong desire, often a sexually motivated desire for their products. It's been going on for quite a while. And we can see if you grew up or you were born in the 50s and have now, you know, what is it? 60-some years later, things have really changed. Things have really changed. It's the old frog in the kettle. You throw a frog into a pot of boiling water, it'll jump right out. You put it in a nice warm pot of water and slowly turn up the heat. It'll cook. That's what the devil has done. He has put us in this pot of immorality, but it wasn't so bad at first. And slowly been turning up the heat. And the more society accepted these practices, where sex was used to sell things, the more sex craze our society became. It's in no small part due to what some have called the Playboy philosophy. I think Playboy started in the 50s, didn't it? Those first magazines were pretty tame compared to what's going on today. But a lot of experts trace this back even, not that Playboy was the, the only one who destroyed the, the, our society, but they were a part of it. And they gave us something called the Playboy philosophy that has now permeated our culture. The Playboy philosophy is nothing more than a perversion of uh, which degrades something God intended as beautiful and holy between a husband and a wife, and turned it into a purely biological function without moral consequences. Hugh Hefner, the man who lived most of his life in his bathrobe, who died in 2017, 
Here's what he said. Why get so upset about sex? It's only a biological necessity like eating, drinking, and sleeping. Guys, that attitude is nothing new. It comes right out of Greco-Roman paganism. The attitude in the first century Greco-Roman world was that they looked at sex the same way they looked at, they looked at eating, drinking, and sleeping. It was just another biological function to be satisfied without any moral implications whatsoever. Your body gets thirsty, you give it something to drink. Body gets hungry, give it something to eat, right? Your body's tired, you give it some rest. Body wants sex, give it sex. What are you making a big moral thing out of it? It's just the body has needs. And so you satisfy those needs. But you see, the, the inevitable consequence of that philosophy is that you, de that you dehumanize women and then when you couple with pornography, they are turned into mere objects for sexual gratification. And when that happens, when a society gets that corrupt, that depraved, when that happens, you come up with an equation that, first of all, equals violent crimes against women. Rape is always at the top or near the top of violent crimes in America. And secondly, this so-called playboy philosophy coupled with pornography is a formula for the breakdown of marriage. Now, we're going to need to stop here because what is coming is so important I don't want to just rush through it. But I want you to understand that what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 1, which, which it deals with how a culture, when it turns its back on God, devolves. Of course, scientists are saying we are evolving. The Bible says we're devolving. And if you doubt that, just look at the evening news. You know, I'll end with this. At the turn of the 20th century, we were in kind of a golden age. The Industrial Revolution had kicked in. Uh, you had people leaving the agrarian lifestyle to come into the city. And, uh, and, and making money and starting businesses and companies and so on. Medical knowledge was increasing to the point where people were convinced in a few years disease would be eradicated. All negatives would be eradicated. And the common saying in the early part of the 20th, or, of the, uh, 20th century was, in all things, things are getting better and better. We are evolving to a place of utopia. Science has healed man of all the, you know, uh, all the superstitious stuff that those that were unenlightened clung to, religion, and so on. We've experienced a renaissance. Really, science is our God. And we are evolving into a higher and higher existence. Beginning of the 20th century. But then you had World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam. More people died in the 20th century than had died in all the previous centuries combined. So after a while, you didn't hear people talking about this golden age that was coming. And it was obvious then that man was not evolving, he was devolving. And why was he devolving? Because the farther he moved away from God, when I say he, I mean mankind, and began to set himself up as God, 
following his own stubborn heart and what he believed was right for society, well, as people moved more and more away from God, sin rushed in to fill the vacuum. God's laws, remember what God said to Israel, if you obey these commandments, I will, I will keep you from the diseases of Egypt. I will make sure that your lives are blessed. But if you forsake me, I'm going to turn you over to the consequences of your sin. Maybe that will break you and bring you back to me. So we will pick up our study, God willing, next week. Uh, we will um, continue this topic. I think it's a very important topic, one that Paul thought was important enough to spend a lot of time on there in Romans chapter 1. So we'll pick it up next week, God willing. Father, we thank you. We thank you, Lord, for your great love wherewith you loved us. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. Thank you for giving to us the light of your word, the light of your truth that kept, keeps us away from error and darkness and, and so we don't stumble in our sins and, and, and wind up reaping terrible consequences. And Father, we pray that you will continue to bless these studies at Aromas. We ask all this now in Jesus' precious name. Amen.